Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. That means knock on wood, by the way. (laughs) Okay, um, welcome to this session on nighttime lust or dreams. My name is David. I'm a recovering sexaholic. I've been sexually sober since August 1st, 1985, and I'm joined by my friend and sponsor, Harvey A., and we're going to be the facilitators for this uh, this session. Uh, each of us will share our recovery on the topic, then we'll take time to answer questions. Uh, questions will be taken from the Ask a Basket. If you wish to participate, write your question on the 3 by 5 card and place it in the basket on the table. And we got cards up here, and, and we'll also recognize them from the floor as well. In the spirit of the fifth tradition to carry the message, this is a recorded session. The recording equipment will not be turned off during the session. We ask that you please silence all cell phones. So let's, um, let's open with a serenity prayer. Prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. And with that, Harvey, you want to take it away? I'm uh, Harvey Asher, sexaholic. And by the way, um, when many years ago, and somehow we do it, I don't know how we do it, but we do it, we co-sponsor each other. And I'll call Dave, and I'll say, I need you as a sponsor today. And then other days, it works in reverse. See, this is all magic. We make titles, definitions. No, I just have to learn to surrender. And then I'll ask David something, and I surrender to what he says. A lot of times when I, I also have an AA sponsor, I never ask the same question to two different sponsors. That's the disease talking. It wants to play one side against the other. But one day at a time, um, thank goodness, David's been the first one who hasn't either fired me or lost his sobriety (laughs) over the years. As as you know from the talk today, (coughs) Roy was my first sponsor. And over the years, uh, you get to know that it's God talking through these people. And 
you just move on one day at a time. A lot of my sponsors have died over the years. I tend to pick, especially at AA, very old men, so they have time. They're retired. <laughs> and whenever I, my sponsor dies and I get a new sponsor, my kids always say to me, Dad, does he know what's going to happen to him? <laughs> Luckily, that's only an AA, not an SA. <laughs> Lust at night. <laughs> Our real topic's lust in the daytime, but we're not going to talk about it. This lust at night doesn't mean shit. <laughs> You're asleep. You make a big deal out of being asleep. Now, what you do before you go to sleep, if you sit, lay in bed playing with yourself but not get an orgasm, and then you fall asleep and you have a wet dream, that's a very different story than what we're hopefully going to talk about. That is an intent to have an orgasm. But most of you, like me, are OCD. Obsessive compulsive. So you'll figure out a way to figure out you're still sober, which to usually means I didn't have a release. Not that I'm touching myself. I didn't have a release. I'm sober. So you play the game of playing around right before you go to bed. Then again, you don't have to play around. Anything as sick as I was, I was able to have orgasm just from fantasies, ultimately. God, I see some heads shaking. You mean other people were as sick as I was? No way, I'm the sickest. <laughs> and so, we're not talking about any of that. For me, I'm not talking about that. That's acting out. We're talking about wet dreams. And there is a history behind this topic. Uh, I came in before the big book was written. Not the big, the essay book was written. We had no essay book. And I was about <coughs> 11 months sober, and I began. Everyone I knew, including the speaker today, had relapsed. I knew Roy the founder, not this Roy, Roy the founder relapsed after a year and a half. And I was getting close to a year. And I was basically, you know, this was me. This was it in Nashville because my sponsor gone to jail. And there were a few of us. And I didn't know what to do. This in my mind, everyone I knew relapsed. But I did not have that ability to take the risk. This, I'm a very low-bottom drunk. You know, many of you have heard me tell this story. Someone once said at a meeting, if you get so depressed 
from shame and guilt of what you've done in your past. And you must kill yourself. You're determined to kill yourself. Before you kill yourself, go to a meeting where Harvey's at. Say at the meeting what you've done, and he'll tell you how he's done it at least three times. And you'll walk out of there feeling wonderful. All these years, I don't think I've really heard a story I hadn't done or at least thought about. <laughs> so in the book, no, so the book wasn't written yet. And um, it was 11 months. And I said, I'm going to lose my sobriety if I just follow what other people did. Harvey, what can you do to try to change. I finally said, there's something you could do, but it's impossible. And that was, because I was a sexually abusive husband, that was to be abstinent with my wife. I said, no, I can't do that. And I realized that's what I had to do. So I very sheepishly went to my wife, thinking, I said to her, honey, I'd like a short period of abstinence. And I was expecting her to start screaming, no, 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 anything but that, Harvey. <laughs> I was picturing her running out of the room, screaming, no, no. Instead, with hatred like I had never seen in her face, she said, I've had enough sex with you to last me a lifetime. Most normal people would have gotten a hint from that. <laughs> After six weeks, I said, wow, look at me, I'm... We've done it, gone six weeks, I'm ready. And she said, I'm not. Well, I called my sponsor, Jess, just screaming about my wife. I have such a wonderful program, I'm abstinent, and she won't rekindle it. And I'm cursing her out on the phone. And he said in his loving, gentle way, hey, stupid. He usually called me knucklehead. Hey, stupid, you're a sex addict. How do you know when to stop your abstinence? He said, let God talk through your wife. It just so happened God must have had a pretty busy couple of years. <laughs> the other alternate was he fell asleep. It was 21 months, but who was counting? And then... I start getting wet dreams. 
I just kept getting wet dreams. And then the book came out. <laughs> the original version of the book says you have lost your sobriety. The original version with the wet dream. I knew I was sober. I'd stay up nights not to fall asleep. I'd do everything I could do, and I'd have a wet dream. I'm a man who was having, was used to masturbate every few hours, who was having sex twice a day with his wife, who was picking men off the street to have sex with, bringing them to female prostitutes. Hundreds of sex partners. I was sober. I knew that was not a loss of sobriety. But Roy kept talking about it. And I'd call him and he'd give me suggestions and I'd do this and do that. Well, the group got so tired of me talking about it that Lee, a guy in the group who's a physician, said, Harvey, have you gone to the doctor to get checked? Said, no. Said, I suggest you go. My prostate gland had gone into shell shock. It, it, the, the gland that gives you not the sperm, but the fluid. You know, when people say they get cancer of the prostate or whatever, that's a gland inside you that puts out fluid to go with the sperm so that it goes swimming and having some fun swim up the canal. Well, the doctor said your prostate's all swollen. I mean, the damn little prostate was in panic. It hadn't had a release in almost two years but <laughs> by me or through intercourse. My body was in shock. And this special man was saying, no, it's lots of sobriety. Well... I got a sponsor, Jess, and Jess said, no, Harvey, a wet dream when you're not making it happen is a proof of your sobriety. This, none of us hardly ever, no, I never knew what a wet dream was. Never knew what a wet dream was. My body didn't have time to have a wet dream. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like Jess's version better. <laughs> he was my sponsor to, for about 12 years, by the way. And then I started. Uh, going for uh, the doctor to press on my prostate gland to get the swelling down. And then I started seeing, for me, um, 
I would see a pattern. The pattern was after a certain period of time, I'd get an erotic dream without a release. And then soon after that, then the release comes. So I started for me, I'm not recommending this for anyone. The minute I had an erotic dream, the next night I would take an ibuprofen. And it apparently helped my, the swelling so it didn't build up again. I tell this story very different than my wife. <laughs> I say, you know, how good I was about all this. She tells her story. I'd be whining all the time. Honey, I'm going to have a wet dream. You know how it upsets me. You, what's going on here? When I tell this story, it's I'm like this angelic, never bothering her. She goes into great detail, but I've, I blocked it. I blocked her part. <laughs> oh, she'd say, hard. Heart, she'd say, I'd say, oh, it aches, and do you want me to ache? Do you want this? <laughs> one, um, one day, by the way, I realized she would never have sex with me again, and I said, am I willing to stay married to her? This was 21 months. And um, something in me said, yes, I'll stay married to her, even though I'll probably never have sex with her again. Within two days, she asked me to have sex. She finally felt I was safe. It was nothing I could say or do. She must have felt my surrender. That she was finally safe from an abusive husband. And that's a whole different story, and I'm not going to go into it over the years. But so over the years, I kept getting calls from other people because, as you know, I'm not very shy sharing my experience, strength, and hope. And I'd get calls from all over the country and all over the world on this subject, especially touching yourself at night. A lot of guys wake up masturbating in the middle of the night. And I had a little script that I say, go buy the tightest jeans you could find. Get sweatpants, tight underwear, put your jeans on, sweatpants over it. By the time you are able to get to it, you'll be asleep again. Now, some guys would say it didn't work. 
They called me back. I said, then buy two pairs of jeans. You finally find what it is to give you the time to really wake up. This I tell them also, have some cold water bowl next to your bed. And when you find yourself ripping it open, try to put cold water on your face. You're asleep. And I'm about to end this with wet dreams are important for me. They rarely come now. Um, I still get some erotic dreams periodically. They're very important that they showed me what I was really feeling. Because when you wake up from a wet dream, you don't feel good. It's kind of a, a it's even different than a little how you felt from masturbating after it was done. You just don't feel right. And I finally realized that's how I was always feeling from acting out, but I never had a chance without my endorphins and all my drugs from acting out to really experience what it was doing to me. You know, the old medical books, I think I could still remember some, used to call masturbation self-abuse. You know, I, I always have to say this when talking about self-abuse. We, in the beginning of our recovery, we went to a sex therapist, uh, Ginger, and um, she looks at me and she says, you know, Harvey, masturbation could be a very nurturing experience. And I looked at her and I said to this therapist, Ginger, if masturbation is nurturing, I should be the most nurtured person <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Dave has a lot about this too, and then we could always come back and uh, do, do the questions, uh, but I want to end with a um, very important word. It's called intent. Some people call it kavana. What is the intent when you're going to sleep at night? For me, if I don't go to fall asleep within moments, I have to get out of bed because men and women show up in my bed. I don't know who the hell they are. <laughs> but cool people... have to get out of bed. You cannot fight it. The more you try fighting, what many of you call struggling, the worst thing you could do is struggle. This you will always lose. It's bigger than we are. You will always lose. We call it surrender. Letting go. And so for me to surrender, I get out of bed if I'm not asleep 
very, very quickly. Okay. I was his height when I started this program, and no, that's, that's an old joke. Um, I'm David, a recovery sexaholic, and uh, so my experience is, is different. Um, you know, I, I came in separated, and, uh, but I'll, I'll back up. Uh, I, I, I told a little bit of my story, I can't remember, it's been a couple t- sessions ago, but Basically, I discovered uh, pornography. I was introduced to pornography when I was eight years old by a, a, a teenager that lived next door. And, and um, it was extremely exciting to me. And, uh, and I knew instinctively this is not something I'm going to tell my, my parents about. Um, and I don't know how or when I learned how to masturbate, but it was prob- probably within a year, I would, I would guess. And uh, um, so I started masturbating when I was nine, and I didn't go through puberty until I was 17. And uh, so I was um, a real late bloomer, and you know, my dad was a late bloomer, and so I inherited that from him. And... Uh, um, my dad had taken me to um, an after-school program for a, a number of weeks when I was in sixth grade um, about sex education. It was taught in the public schools in Ohio, where I grew up. And uh, so I knew what a wet dream was, but I'd, I never had one. You know, I, I, I was masturbating long before there was anything there. And uh, so, you know, the first wet dream that I had uh, was probably the last time I had um, relations with my ex-wife was February of 1985. And probably within a month or two of that, I had my first ever wet dream. And... uh, and it, you know, I knew what it was. I, I assumed it was because, you know, I hadn't been sexual in a while, and I was used to being sexual either with her or with myself frequently. You know, uh, compulsive masturbation was an issue for me. And so I assumed that's what it was. So I went to my first essay meeting um, in August, uh, around August 7th or 8th in uh, that year, 1985, and um, started surrendering. Um, you know, I didn't have any pornography, for, fortunately. Um, I, I don't think I had cable TV at the time. And um, I started surrendering, you know, every, t- every time it came up. And, uh, you know, something that I had not been able to stop doing um, all I can describe to you, it was, it was lifted from me. Um, the compulsion left me. And uh, 
Um, so it wasn't a struggle not to masturbate, which just blew my mind, but I wasn't going to question it, <laughs> you know, keep, keep going. And, uh, you know, a couple months uh, into my sobriety, uh, I, had my first, I had my first wet dream in recovery. And it freaked, freaked me out. It scared the crap out of me. It was, as Harvey said, it, it was not pleasant. Um, and we have somebody in our uh, fellowship that jokes, what are you worried about? It's a freebie. Yeah, just <laughs> let it go, man. You know, I, if I have him, it's like, wow. Um, but I'm an engineer, and I tend to think, I take things really seriously. <laughs> and... Um, so it really freaked me out, and I didn't know what to do. And uh, so I talked about it in my meeting. We, you know, we, this was Rochester, New York, 1985. We had one meeting a week. And uh, you know, I talked about it. I said, gosh, I had one, and it just it wasn't pleasant. I, I, I can't remember now. It's been too long ago whether I remembered what, what was going on in the dream. Um, but that started a pattern probably about every month to two months, you know, I would have a wet dream. And gosh, they, they really bugged me. So uh, like, like Harvey said, you know, my, my, our, my first big book is eight and a half by 11. It came in a, with a brown, plain brown wrapper. <laughs> and, um, and, and what they were were a collection of you know, Roy's essays uh, that he, he had been writing. He was a writer. You know, his, his profession was writing, and he was really good at it. Uh, you, know, he, you know, he wrote our white book. And, uh, um, and so, you know, I called him. And, you know, and, and, and like with, with Harvey, you know, I got some ideas of how I, you know, could try to control them, and it, but it always got back to, t- how are you still lusting? And you know, I, I wasn't working a perfect pro- program, but you know, the best I knew how, you know, I wasn't masturbating, I wasn't looking at pornography, I wasn't flirting, uh, I was still married but separated. Um, you know, I was doing the best I could. I was working my first three steps. There were, um, you know, there was one other guy in the program, you know, I came to my first meeting one week sober, and I think he has, he had one, maybe one day less than me, and so we were co-sponsoring each other, and um, he was married, he was still being sexual with his spouse, and, um, you know, he said, I, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you, but, you know, I'm not having him, and and so I, you know, I felt isolated and indifferent, and and so it took took a while, but um, you know, finally the <laughs> it came out. You know, it's it's like uh, Roy believed, and I believe he believed this that he he could control his dreams, and he believed that he could lose his sobriety in his dreams. I think it says that in a white book, and I never experienced that. You know, I. I, they were, they were uncomfortable dreams, and and I, I remember it, there being fear in my dreams. Oh my gosh, I, 
I don't want to act out. And yet it would happen. And I'd wake up and I'd feel like crap. And uh, so this began a pattern over the next two years. Every time I had one, I reset my sobriety. That, that was the only guidance that I had. And uh, so I went to my first essay conference uh, in 1986, and you know, I was, in retrospect, I was over a year sober, but I, you know, I said I'm, I'm two weeks or three weeks or whatever because I'd had a wet dream. And, and uh, that went on, and uh, it wasn't until the following year, 1987, I, um, it occurred to me that you know, I had some issues outside of sexual addiction my, from my family of origin, and um, I, I started exploring that. And uh, I, I started getting some, some therapy, uh, learning about my family of origin issues. And uh, it was several months into that um, when I, you know, I, was, I was complaining about my wet dreams to my, to my therapist who knew about my sexual addiction recovery. And um, he... He said something very similar to, to what uh, Jess said to Harvey. He said, have you ever considered that your wet dreams might be a sign of your recovery rather than your disease? And um, I melted. You know, I, I, I just broke down and bawled. And it never occurred to me. You know, somehow I was doing something wrong. And, I, you know, I, I just didn't know what it was. And it had never occurred to me that maybe this was a sign of my recovery. You know, since that time, and I could, you know, I, I cut them out of the newspaper. I, there was a Dear Abby, or something like Dear Abby, uh, where, you know, somebody talked about wet dreams. Um, you know, our founder was of the opinion that there was no natural reason for you to have wet dreams for lack of activity. And I, I found an article in the newspaper by a, a medical doctor saying he disputed that. So, you know, I, I think the, you know, there, there's, there's different opinions about this. It's like a lot of things. And uh, uh, more recently, um, I got a Got an email. I, I listened to, uh, um, a, you know, to radio. One of the things I discovered in my recovery, because visual Im images are, uh, I didn't go to movies for 15 years. Okay, uh, the visual images and the sound were just too much for me. And part of it was a religious thing too. Okay, I was in a very, um, very conservative Christian. Um, denomination that didn't approve of movies, okay? So I didn't go to movies for 15 years, my first 15 years in recovery. So um, I you know, just kind of stayed away from that. I'm trying to remember why I went down that road. Um, you know, radio. Ah, so I discovered the radio. Okay, so radio, thank you. Um, I became a huge radio person. And, uh, and just discovered a, a lot of wonderful programming and a lot of things that have been very helpful. And uh, I get a newsletter from them about once a month. Here, you know, here were the highlights for the last month or whatever. And, and within the last, I don't know, 
several months, um, I see this, this article on sexomnia. What? You know, typically, uh, I'll say that, you know, if I see sex in print, I usually don't read the article, okay? Because <laughs> it's, you know, we, we have a saying, uh, I, I can't remember who, who coined it, but it's like, I don't need to know. You know, so if I see sex, you know, the Bill Clinton thing just kind of was over my head. I didn't, I, I couldn't. You know, I just couldn't. It's just uncomfortable for me. So I don't read articles typically, you know, if I see sex or whatever. But anyway, this one, when I saw the sex omnia, I said, aha, uh, because I've heard people talk about, um, you know, I, while I didn't experience this in, in my wet dream experience, I, I, people were sharing with me, you know, I'm waking up and I'm masturbating. Um, there's a name for that. It's called sexomnia. It, and, it's, and it's been documented now by, by medical professionals who specialize in sleep disorders. And it happens with both men and women. And who knew? You know, we knew. <laughs> yeah, we knew. And, um, you know, there, there are various in sundry treatments for it. I, I have to admit, I, I read an article that was recommended to me like two nights ago, and it was a trigger. It was triggering for me. And uh, um, that very... <laughs> I was telling somebody, you know, I'm going to talk on this topic. I can't remember the last erotic dream I had. <laughs> I had one that night. <laughs> so, um, you know, there is a, a power of... Um, whatever yes so so um, you know typically now um, you know once so I settled in I was um, single and sober about 11 years before I got married so over that 11 year period of my celibacy you know it, it probably ended up averaging out every couple of months you know I would have a you know, I, I came into recovery when I was 33, so I got married when I was 44, remarried when I was 44. And uh, so after, you know, we got married and we started being sexual, um, the frequency diminished. But it, they didn't go away, you know. Um, particularly after our first child was born and my wife was... Uh, nursing our our first child, um, we had a, a pretty long period of abstinence during that period, and um, you know the every couple of months thing happened again. So you know that was my experience. Um, but this sexomnia thing, I think, you know, has some relevance to it. You know what we're you know he tells me this all the time. We're pioneers. We are you know. You know, people haven't done this before. You know, we've been around for 30-plus years, and that's not a long time. You know, we're, we're still discovering things, uh, and we're, we're still discovering, you know, about healthy sexuality and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's kind of how it's worked for me. You know, I believe, you know, if, if, 
you know, this is the kind of stuff we need to be talking about. You know, the last time we talked about it, I think, was in Chicago in maybe 2000. So it's been a while since we've, since we've talked about this topic. And I actually suggested it, it for, this, for this conference because I know people deal with it, you know. Um, I think women's, women deal with it as well. I'd like to hear their experience, strength, and hope about it. We happen to be, you know, 99% male in this room right now. But, um, you know, based on what I read about sexomnia, it happens with both men and women. So, um, so let's keep talking about this stuff. That's, that's how it gets, that, you know, that's how we deal with these issues. Um, you know, we're, you know, we've still got, you know, we're, we're still the pioneers. And, um, you know, we're going to continue to learn and, and, and about this particular topic. And um, let's keep it up. So with that, I'm going to open it up for questions. How did I do? I forgot to start my watch. So it's just right. Yes. Hey, Moshe Saksalik. Hey, Moshe. Thank you for your share. Uh, just in terms of the, because I've been abstinent for a couple of years now, and I have these wet dreams that come. Um, I don't believe I'm masturbating in my sleep. They just come. Sometimes I don't even remember the dream. Mm -hmm. I just wake up. And, uh, but I'll tell you, without fail, I feel like utter crap, and it's not just in the morning. It can follow for several days mm -hmm. where I feel I've lost my sobriety. I just feel miserable mm -hmm. and shit, and it's any experience rate that will deal with those feelings afterwards. Yeah, so the, so the question was, um, you know, I'm, I'm in recovery. I'm, I've been absent for a number of years. Um, I'm experiencing wet dreams. I feel terrible. Um, uh, afterwards, uh, do you have any experience, strength, and hope? And, you know, for me, talking about it at, at meetings, it really, you know, it's, it's not something that uh, a lot of people, you know, you hear at meetings, but, um, you know, I try to talk about it when I have one. You know, w w the version I have most frequently today is I call it my a drinking dream. You know, I, I dream that I've been masturbating for years and telling you, you all that I'm sober. And I wake up and I, I, it, it takes me a while to, to realize that was a dream. Uh, it's so realistic. And uh, I'm not sure what that, what that is, but that's, I, that's what I experience. And I, I usually tell him about it or I tell somebody that calls me, hey, gosh, I had one of those dreams last night, my drinking dream. And uh, it was really uncomfortable. And for me, I, I think what... What I knew in my heart, in my truth of truth, was this is not something that I wanted to be doing. I didn't see it as a freebie. You know, I didn't see this as you know, a get-out-of-jail card or whatever. It was, it was something that disturbed me and, and made me feel uncomfortable. You, you want to say anything about it? I get up and I go clean myself. And it changed my underwear. And I put on new bottom pajamas. And I go back to sleep. If you dreamt that you were fighting some great dinosaur, and you wake up and you're having some anxiety, how much energy do you want to give to a damn dream? 
We can't even give energy to some of our thoughts yet dreams that we're totally not in control of. And when I used to complain to my main sponsor in AA when I started, it was Catholic, and it was a real observant Catholic, and I'd be all upset about a wet dream, and he'd say, even priests get them if they're celibate. What are you complaining about? What's the big deal? There's only one big deal if you're making them happen by laying in bed playing with yourself before you go to bed. Then don't be surprised. They're just a dream. Now, the piece in that is that we tend to give our brain more importance than it is. So we end up judging everything. So if you're not judging what happened, it's going to be no different than if you got to get up and take a leak. But that's not what our programming's been. Most of us do not have a free brain. It's all the programs that our parents and our religion and our society and our culture have planted in. Some are real good. Some aren't as good for me. But I have to know that none of them are mine. And then I have to reevaluate, question each one of these. So I make a prayer. Thank you, God, for reminding me how bad it used to be. From that feeling you get afterwards. And by the way, let's not clean this up too much. We used to get that feeling right after masturbating. I mean, who are we kidding? You start doing it and you say, I'm going to do it two, three times, and then you do it once and you, you start feeling some of that. Well, what is that? It's the endorphins, the cocaine, and then the crash. For whatever reason, if I'm okay and I'm not into lust with my wife, in bed, in intimacy. I never get that feeling. But that somehow those endorphins give you a crash. And if there's anything I want to be remembered for years from now is that I kept reminding people we have a drug addiction. We're not bad people getting good. Most of have us been born this way. It happened before we even knew what sex was. And we have a drug addiction. It happens to take the form of endorphins and serotonin that get regulated through masturbating or lusting. You say that when you are going to sleep, don't fight it. You should surrender it. Give me an example. This is confusing. Sounds like magic. Um, it's a f- 
we have an engineer here, so maybe he could explain it more. <laughs> when we were kids, there was a straw thing that you put your fingers in, either in, and what happens? The harder you pull your fingers out, the tighter it gets. If you surrender and go the opposite way, it loosens up and you take your fingers right out. Okay? Whenever you struggle, you fight something, you're giving it energy. So when those thoughts come in and those people show up in my bed, instead of my saying, you're bad, how can you do that? Your wife's right here. You have another person here. How can that be? I say, if I'm not asleep in a moment, I'm going to get up out of bed. If I say, don't, you can't have that thought, it's just going to get stronger. No, I got to take an action. So let's say I notice a trigger at a meeting. Struggling means, oh, I see that gal, I see that guy, I see this, I see that, I can't look, I better not look. That is struggling. Surrender is, Harvey, move your chair an eighth of an inch. Take an action. It, it's magic. It's magic. When you take a simple action. You want to talk in that one? No, I'm good. The next one is, do you have experience with wet dreams being, being related to your resentment during the day? I'm not sure why I'm not sure why I'm doing this, but I do, do want to read you the question. Do you have experience with wet dreams being related to your resentment during the day? Uh, not dealt with. I've had that experience. Um, you know, um, probably the most excruciating experience I had with a wet dream was uh, I, I, I realized that I was, had, had duplicated my family of origin with my best friend and his wife. And in my family of origin, I was my mother's confidant. And therefore, I was in constant conflict with my father. It's what motivated my, my father to threaten my life, it turns out which makes kind of sense when you kind of understand what the dynamics were. But I was a kid, and I didn't know any better, okay? So I'm in recovery. I moved to Detroit, Michigan. Um, um, my best friend from college, who I believe is a sexaholic, um, and his wife kind of take me in. And um, before I know it, uh, she's confiding in me about my best friend, and I, I didn't know how toxic that was uh, until, you know, my, my therapist asked me, is, is there any, is there, was there ever a time in your life when you felt icky around your parents? 
And I said, no, but there, it's, it's happening right now in my relationship with my best friend and his wife. And he goes, you duplicated, you, you duplicated your parents. You know, I was always trying to please him, and I became her confidant. And so I pulled away from that relationship. And boy, did I get a lot of pushback. And uh, it manifested itself in one day I get a call from work from my best friend who was out of town. And um, his wife had gone home and was letting the dog out. And there was a guy standing at the door. And he said he wanted a drink of water. And she knew something was up. And she took the dog around the house. And here comes a police car. And uh, this guy had assaulted somebody in the neighborhood and was, was trying to escape. And so he, he calls me at work and he says, would you buy some flowers and send them over to my, to my wife and tell her I love her and I'm sorry this thing happened? Well, I do that. Uh, about an hour later, I get a call from her. Can you come over and spend the night? I'm, I'm, I'm frightened. And I, you know, and I'd been pulling away from them and there had been a lot of repercussions around that. And I said, no, I can't. But I, you know, I live two miles away. If something happens, you call 911 first and you can call me second and I'm on my way. Um, she said, are are you sure? I really need for you to come over and spend the night. And I said, no, I, you know, I can't do that. My, my best friend called me and said, can you go over and spend the night? And I said, no, I can't. I'm sorry. And, uh, I had three wet dreams that night. Um, I was, every time I went to sleep, I'd wake up, I'd get up, clean myself up, go back to bed. Um, that's the only time that ever happened to me. There, I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by that experience. Um, I've, never, I've never shared that with anybody, so you know, this is the first time. Um, but it, um, you know, it was a very powerful experience, and, and uh, that's how it manifested itself in my life. And uh, I did the best I could. I knew that holding that boundary with them was, was, was life and death to me. Uh, I'm no longer in a relationship with these people. It's, that was 1987. Um, I regret, you know, I, I, I still pray for them. I, I miss them. You know, I, I love them. Um, but it was, it was really toxic. And uh, that's, so that's, that's the closest I can relate to that. So uh, how are we doing on time here? I think we have enough for one, one more. Garrison. 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 Uh, Garrison. I've got a spot C. He's probably got some version of sex omnia giving your advice about the two jeans and the sweatpants and everything. Get anything else? Um, any other ideas or techniques for that? Struggle pretty hard. Thanks. Yeah. We can't choose the word struggle. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to go to a doctor, go get checked, make sure his prostate's okay. And then if it still happens, what can you do? If he's clean, he knows he's clean. We just can't control everything. It's like saying, how can I stop having an arousal in the middle of the night? 
Well, it's related to REM sleep. You get aroused during REM sleep. There are certain <laughs> things that, that's physiological. It's the fighting, it's the struggling. As long as you know your intent, you're doing the best you could, and we're pioneers. And we have no leaders, we have no authority, we have no one but our own being honest with ourselves. We have suggestions based on other people's experience, strength, and hope. Okay, that's it. Thank you, guys. Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and traditions. Let's close with the third step prayer. Let's close up the circle, please. Prayer. God, God I, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thy will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties and the victory over them and the witness of the will. Of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life, may thy will always keep coming back. It works if you work it, not if you don't. But the fellowship, because oh, yeah, if he wrote that in the white book, there is a kind of Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just, uh, I appreciate
I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.